Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to this, the uh, second edition of the CSCS Beat, More Than Just Matters of the Heart. Uh, my name is Ansar Hassan. I'm a cardiac surgeon here at the New Brunswick Heart Center in St. John, New Brunswick, and I'm also president-elect of the CSCS. And my name is Rakesh Arora, cardiac surgeon intensivist from the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, and the current president of the Canadian Society of Cardiac Surgeons. You know, last month, uh, we launched our first ever podcast. It was a t- it was entitled, Does Taver Mean the Death of Saver? With our guest speaker, Dr. Jean-Francois Legarry. And I, first of all, I thought it was great. And a, a special thanks to our sponsors, Edward Life Sciences, for providing the support for this podcast series. And also to our production partners, Bangla Bino, who really kind of come forth and provided us with incredible technical expertise. Hey, Rakesh, did you have a chance to listen to that podcast yet? You know, I did. And it, for a first attempt, I think we did pretty well. For those who haven't listened to it yet, you can find the podcast and eventually all other podcasts on iTunes and Spotify, as well as the CSCS YouTube channel. And so do you have any idea how many people actually listened to the podcast so far? Well, I know as of yesterday, uh, the YouTube version had 25 views. Um, now, I must admit, I don't know how many people have listened to it on iTunes, but I do know that my mommy and daddy listened to it and they loved it. You know, they said... You and Rakesh sound just like Dr. Sanjay Gupta. And why is Taver trying to kill Saver? <laughs> okay, well, I know at least one thing we fulfilled one key objective. That's bringing <laughs> us together, cardiac surgeons from across Canada, to discuss matters in a casual, informal, and safe, you know, some of these uh, the hottest and controversial topics facing our specialty. You know, and I think tonight will be no exception. Uh, I mean, the topic for tonight's podcast is evolution and the management of acute heart failure, a shocking development. And we have two esteemed colleagues from across Canada joining us tonight. We have uh, Dr. Mitesh Badawalia, who is an assistant professor of surgery at the University of Toronto, and he's a staff cardiovascular surgeon at the Peter Monk Cardiac Center at the University Health Network in Toronto. And he's also surgical director of the heart transplant program at UHM. Yeah, and we've got Mark Laskowski, the director of the CICU and the shock team at the Montreal Heart Institute. Thanks both for you joining us tonight, and we welcome you to this podcast. Yeah. Look, cardiogenic shock, as you know, Rakesh, is associated with considerable morbidity and mortality. I mean, the management of patients presenting with acute heart failure and cardiogenic shock has seen tremendous evolution over the past few years. And I think the creation of multidisciplinary shock teams have been have been undertaken in many institutions like as it as a way to try to improve outcomes in these patients. Yeah, I think to that point, we get to welcome back Dr. Jean-Francois Laguerre, the head of cardiac surgery at the New Brunswick Heart Center and the past president CSCS to provide a brief overview and frame for this discussion we'll have with our two uh, guest colleagues this week on the management of acute cardiogenic shock. JF? Thank you, guys. So acute cardiogenic shock in everyday practice remains a very challenging condition to recognize and to treat. And I think there are several problems to that. The first problem being that not much has changed since the original shock trial as shown here. Uh, comparing revascularization to medical therapy and basically showing that early cardiac catheterization revascularization provide a survival advantage. However, despite this, almost 20 years ago, mortality remains high and probably as high as 50%. The second problem that we're facing is that physicians often very uh, approach this in very different ways and perspectives. Uh, and furthermore, often these approaches are often poorly aligned with each other in, in many ways whether you're a clinical cardiologist, an interventional cardiologist, an anesthesiologist, electrophysiologist, or a cardiac surgeon. So, and this has also occurred in the context where there's been tremendous increase in the use of extracorporeal membrane oxygenation or ECMO across the world, and particularly in North America, in trying to deal with this problem and in trying to deal with patients with cardiogenic shock. 
and and that has led obviously with tremendous pressure in many of our healthcare systems and trying to deal with this. So unfortunately, this is also in the context of having limited trial evidence to guide us and to guide clinicians. There's been no clear benefit in many of the trials looking at mechanical circulatory support. Even if there's limited evidence, it, these have looked at balloon pump and an impella, for example. However, there appears to be some evidence suggesting that a multidisciplinary approach and a concept of a shock team potentially has some benefit and can actually improve outcomes. And this is where this has led to uh, some authors proposing that the contemporary management of cardiogenic shock should include a shock team. And, uh, but what does this shock team mean? What does it, what is it composed of? How do we roll that out? And hopefully this is where in today's podcast, our experts will tackle this complex area with their unique perspective and, uh, and help us. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. That was a really great overview and a good framework to start this conversation. And there's a lot of perspectives that you've highlighted are part of this in the treatment of cardiac shock. And this has evolved dramatically over the last several years. Let's bring them back in, Mark and Matesh, to get some of their, their opinions on this. And let me start with a basic question, Mark, maybe for you to start. How do we improve the diagnosis of cardiogenic shock? That really seems to be the, the primary foot in the door to activate a process to get that patient the right help as quickly as possible. Yeah, so I think uh, the biggest problem is that uh, you know all shock can, tends to sort of resemble each other at the beginning. So the emergency room on the ward, everybody looks kind of gray and clammy, and you know, if you put a Foley catheter and they're all sort of oligaric, hypotensive. Uh, so it's really tough just clinically to get an idea of what it is. Could be septic, obstructive, as much as cardiogenic. If you don't have a an index event like an acute MI, uh, so I think what's important is sort of what uh, Navin Kapoor has been talking about these past few years is try to identify the phenotype of the shock you have. I think uh, by trying to identify what kind of hemodynamics your patient has allows you to decide what's the best place for this patient to be, mm. or what's the best therapy the patient needs, and that might mean transfer to a court in your center or a center that has advanced mechanical support or a shock team. So in using that principle of what's your phenotype, I think the most important thing is to use invasive hemodynamics. And I think that's the initial thing that we have to do these days is to probably get a good idea of what the initial numbers are in terms of filling pressures and a certain calculations that we know how to use now, the PAPI and the CPO, to get a good idea if the patient's a survivor or non-survivor, and from there go on to advanced therapies. So Mitesh, I mean, kind of building on what Marcus just said, from your standpoint, you know, should there be a basic level of invasive monitoring in these patients and what should that basic level be and how do we enforce it? Because I think that's an issue that we're all facing mm -hmm. when we're presented with these patients is, you know, the, the one thing we complain a lot about as surgeons sometimes is just we don't have enough data. Uh, so what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree. I mean, we receive a lot of outside calls for shock, um, being the heart failure center in Toronto. And so when we take these calls, we ask for that data. And part of it is asking for the right heart cath data. Um, and if they're not able to provide it, and they have a patient who uh, fits the clinical diagnosis of, of shock, uh, that's when we go through our critical system to bring them to our institution uh, and then the pathway splits into two. If it's an ischemic etiology, they go to the cath lab and they get a right heart cath there. But if it's not an ischemic etiology, then we bring them to our critical care unit, either the med surge ICU or more typically the, the CICU and do a right heart cath to identify that phenotype. So at some point, um, you know, a part of our shock algorithm involves uh, right heart catheterization. Um, and so if an outside institution has a patient 
that, uh, that they're worried about and they call us through our critical system and they're not able to provide that data, then that's, that's one of the triggers if the patient doesn't have other exclusionary criteria to bring the patient quickly to our center for that, that identification. Right, so really good points there. So you've got a patient now, you've identified a potential risk uh, of this patient having a phenotype that's consistent with a cardiogenic shock, you bring him to your center for right heart cath. What do you do next then? What's the process to activate the team, Mark? What, what, have, what have you learned in your shock team at the Montreal Heart Institute? Also, the biggest problem we had is that, you know, there was many ways to contact cardiologists, surgeons, or critical care physicians in our hospital, and the poor operator didn't know who to call when somebody was calling for help from another center. Right, right. So we decided to right away route all the, car, all the calls to the main heart failure cardiologist on our cardiac ICU, and he would sort of field the initial, you know, physiological and, and data on what kind of patient this is, and, uh, you know, decide to pull the trigger. And we decided that he would be the one to call and contact all the other members of the shock team. Uh, either if it's, you know, a couple of his uh, colleagues, he can contact right on the phone or ask the operator to, uh, to ring in all the other team members, uh, the surgeon, the intensivist, uh, the interventional cardiology team, uh, just so we have a proper idea of, you know, who's on the phone and discuss the case uh, real time, even before the patient gets transferred over in case somebody brings up points where this patient's not, uh, not deemed to be transferred. But I think the most people, most centers I'd say would have a big problem is how do you initiate this shock team call? And right. I think uh, we've gone through many versions and I'm not sure if we have the best one, but uh, we're, we're willing to modify that as we go along. Right, right. So I know answer, maybe I could just ask one more question. You know, I may have jumped the gun out a bit across the communication. Let's take one step back. Who should be on this team attached and how do you get those people to work together? Once you activate this process, you need to know who it needs to be activated. Who should be on that team? We've gone through a similar process of it being haphazard where, you know, it used to be the cardiac surgeon and then they'd call the heart failure cardiologist or it'd be the heart failure cardiologist calling the surgeon. And we, we basically through experience have whittled it down to the point person being the heart failure cardiologist on call. They call the cardiac surgeon on call for heart failure and transplant. The two of them initially discuss the case. And if the patient fits eligibility for activation of the, the shock uh, algorithm, then we involve our medical surgical ICU intensivist because that's where the patients ultimately will go if they have uh, ECMO, for instance. Um, we don't involve the interventional cardiologists unless uh, there is something for them to do, essentially. We, we, we've learned that um, uh, having too many cooks uh, kind of makes things confusing. And so right, we've whittled right. it down to initial uh, two-person conversation. Uh, and if there's a lack of consensus between those two who happen to be on call, our group is very collegial and we, we wake each other up and, and either email, circulate an email very quickly uh, and have a, a consensus opinion built uh, pretty quickly uh, in cases where there is some doubt or, or lack of agreement. Uh, so, so in terms of the team, it's a surgeon, a heart failure cardiologist, plus or minus the uh, med surge intensivist, plus or minus the interventionalist if required. Yeah. And it's interesting to hear you say that because I think, you know, let's be honest, each center, you're going to have to personalize the team to what your strengths mm -hmm. are, right? I mean, you know, there's probably not one formula that fits everyone. But I guess, you know, let's back it up even one step further. Is it safe to say that every major cardiac center in Canada should have a multidisciplinary cardiogenic shock team? Mark? Well, I think so. I mean, the models that are coming out of the U.S. Uh, clearly show the advantage of having sort of a hub and spoke model where clearly within certain you know, geographical uh, distances, you have at least one big center that has uh, all these team members that can do, uh, you know, cardiac surgery, advanced support, uh, heart failure, 
maybe not necessarily transplant, uh, may not be available in all in all places, but uh, at least the, the main team that can get people onto sub- maximal support like ECMO or, or make decisions, you know, simply not to. Uh, so I think that, you know, given the size of Canada and uh, the outlying regions, I think every major city should have uh, a, uh, an advanced multidisciplinary uh, a team that has a cardiac surgery uh, uh, unit on call. Right, right. So Jeff, you got someone now is in your, you've had your heart tube discussion, you go, okay, this patient needs support. They're not going to make it, which is inotropic support or perhaps just a balloon pump. Should we be thinking ECMO and Pella? What should be that decision tree? You know, I, I think as these guys suggested, the dynamic monitoring is super important. I, my questions were more, you know, not the type of device you're going to use, but the, the approach you're going to have once you've got the information you got to right away, time is important on your initial maneuvers. If you think it's hypovolemia, give some volume, see response. So the question to these guys is really, you know, when has too much time evolved to then trigger the next step and the next step? You know, you need processes in place where, you know, you're going to try the first anotrope you think is going to work. It's not going to work. 15 minutes later, you know, your next gas, you show, you know, worsening acidosis, you know, what am I doing? And this is where the engagement is so important and how you're approaching this time is key. Time with poor perfusion is key. Lactic acidosis and worsening and organ perfusion is really going to kill you in the end. And you got to do everything to prevent that. And as soon as you start having those things, you've got to obviously, you know, intervene. And the intervention where we are, you know, we don't have numerous devices to use. So for us, you know, the approach would likely go to ECMO for what we do because we can provide biventricular support unless there's obviously different things and different things you'll learn from the information you've obtained. You know, one of the things I noticed in one of your slots and one of your uh, talking points, JF, was that, you know, it's interesting that ECMO utilization has clearly gone up. And Mitesh, maybe I'll ask you about this, you know, but then survival hasn't really changed necessarily over time. So maybe, uh, you know, building on a little bit of what JF just said about, you know, really having processes in place and, you know, knowing, you know, when to kind of move to the next step and next step so that, you know, there isn't a big delay and there isn't a big lag. Uh, what are your thoughts of in general? Because, I mean, obviously ECMO and Pella, they're, you know, they're comparable systems, but they're also different. Uh, what's your thought about, you know, the general feeling that now a shock team equals going straight to some of these devices? Yeah, so we've learned through experience uh, over a relatively short period of time over the last, you know, six to 10 years, that if you are aggressive and put everyone on support, your outcomes are going to be poor. Garbage in, garbage out, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And so we've become very, very um, particular about assessing the patient upfront very quickly to determine whether they have an exit strategy. For instance, Mm -hmm. if they are supported with ECMO, what's the next step if their heart doesn't recover? Are they eligible for that next step? Um, and then excluding those patients that we've tried and tried and tried to support with ECMO, but it just doesn't work. Patients above the age of 75, if they have an ischemic etiology, even above 60 to 65, we've had terrible results. And so um, we are very, very discerning about patients in that age group. Patients who've had unwitnessed cardiac arrest more than 30 minutes uh, outside of hospital, we've had very, very poor results. And so we are less uh, aggressive about treating those patients because unfortunately, um, we, we feel that they're too far gone. And so there, there is a point of no return. And I think through uh, experience and data and reflection, uh, reflection on your own data, uh, you'll see that those are the groups that if you exclude, 
and you focus it on the younger patients who may have myocarditis or reversible causes or exit strategies, you can bridge them and have their end organs recover and then move them on to transplant or VAD or, or other therapies as opposed to them dying of an ECMO complication with no out. Yeah, so just to, to build on that there, then maybe Mark as well. I, I think what I'm hearing from you, Mitesh, is before you start a therapy, make sure you have a way to get off from that therapy as a first screening tool. Mark, what's been your approach at the Montreal Heart Institute? Uh, very similar. I think uh, with uh, Yohan Lamarche in our center, we've developed uh, you know a, a very short list, list of uh, inclusion criteria, but pretty long list of exclusion criteria. And it's really important to sort of really not jump the gun and end up on ECMO, and then you're you're stuck. Right? You're stuck with a patient who might neurologically survive, wake up, and then you're stuck with a patient who has no exit strategy. Right. So it's really important to, that your center has, based on the strengths that it can offer your patients, a very good list of exclusion criteria, and really stick to them. That's really very, very important. You know, and everybody's, you know, a nice guy and he was a really right. good person and he's, you know, he's kind of young or he looks young, but, you know, really, I think the, the age criteria, the duration of shock, lactate cutoffs, I think those are all really important numbers uh, to stick to because uh, uh, as Mitesh mentioned there, as soon as you're outside of criteria, your mortality rate goes way up uh, and that affects your statistics. And obviously probably there's no way out for those patients anyways, you know, cardiogenic shock has a horrible mortality. So you really have to focus all your efforts on those that can survive because again, it's a very high uh, resource utilizing uh, endeavor. Right. Well, you know, that's, that brings me kind of, as we wind this down uh, and it's been a great discussion up until this point, thanks so much for joining us, uh, Mark and Mitesh and JF. Uh, you know, yeah, as you said, Shock teams are resource intensive, right? I mean, they're costly. And I mean, if we think about it from a budget standpoint, you know, whether it be the devices that we're using, whether it be the time that's spent, you know, the invasive monitoring that's applied, the ICU and, you know, resources that are, you know, utilized, it's not cheap. So, you know, from a, let's, let's put our administrator hat on for a second, you know, how do we, how do we measure success? You know, what's, what's a, what's a metric? And I, I would kind of ask all three of you to weigh on, on this, because I think, you know, people measure success differently in different institutions. You know, I'm sure it's measured differently in the Canada versus the U S but uh, let's start with uh, Mitesh and JF and then back to Mark. Yeah. So, you know, our administrators are always, um, concerned about this topic because in Ontario, as you may or may not know, it's unfunded. Uh, you know, putting someone on VA ECMO for these indi indications is actually an unfunded activity and, and costs the hospital money. And so, you know, we have outlying hospitals that have cardiac surgical units that have no, uh, uh, no uh, um, interest in putting these patients on ECMO. Uh, but because we're the local transplant VAD center, advanced heart failure center, we feel obligated to. So our measure of success may not be, um, you know, fiscally motivated. It may, it, it actually is entirely motivated on getting patients through uh, to survive. Um, and so we measure our, our survival off of ECMO, but also what we are now tracking to see if we're improving the overall shock algorithm is tracking um, the patients that are referred to us through critical, the percentage of them that we actually accept. Um, and, you know, what the, the characteristics are to see if they're being referred earlier uh, as opposed to being later and, and not salvageable to see whether or not our message is moving out into the community of calling us early, discussing cases with us early so that we can actually provide, um, you know, meaningful survival options to these patients who would otherwise die. So try to ensure that people are pulling the trigger sooner rather than later. Correct. Yeah. Great. JF? Yeah. You know, I, I see it as a, 
as a way to educate our nursing and our clinicians that we actually can intervene much earlier in the shock process in which you may actually use less of these very expensive technology. And if anything, if I've learned one thing is it's really helped as a team in general work more collaboratively. Uh, and it's really helped us sort of deal with these difficult situation uh, and, and have the conversations about the exit strategy and all those kinds of things upfront. So, so maybe there is an angle here where you can actually have some cost savings and think of cost savings by actually dealing with more appropriate and earlier, simpler interventions in these patients. Anyways, that's my take on it. And Mark? So last three points, I think, uh, first of all, the invasive hemodynamics might guide us pretty well. I think that uh, from the data is coming from the US, uh, you know, based on certain CPO or PAPI scores, I mean, if your hemodynamics are adequate and you're in the survival group, you probably don't need, you know, the, the heavy artillery and major mechanical support and you might be able to survive on, you know, one or two inotropes at most with revascularization or otherwise. Uh, you know, once you do have the numbers that show you need support, I think you're, you're going to die if you don't get that. Uh, and from there, you have to move to uh, clearly making sure the referral centers are aware of how to contact you as early as possible because, we have a bunch of patients that we got very early within a few hours of the initial event and they walked out of the hospital a week later, two weeks later. We have patients that were delayed and they spend three to four months in hospital and I'm not sure what their one-year recovery is like functionally. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's really important to, to, to communicate, to have feedback and rounds with your referring centers to make sure that, hey, this is your patient, you sent this early, this is the, the survivor that's walking home. Uh, and that's, I think, the most important uh, loop in the whole project. And last thing is, as your exit strategy, don't be afraid to just uh, consider palliative care as an option. So I think at a certain point in time, you can't let the patient run an ECMO for one, two, three, four weeks uh, just because the attending is changing every Monday morning. I think if you were able to plan day one, fine, we'll give it three to five days based on etiology or an exit plan, which could be transplant or not, uh, you got to stick to that because once you're past uh, five to seven days, then you start to get all the other complications that prolong the care of the patient. 100%. Good points. Good points. If I were to say one more, one more comment on the, you know, what's the biggest impediment to us being successful in this area? I still think it's our ability to recognize shock state, despite us talking about, you know, the patients where it becomes obvious and then we're doing even dynamics and we're doing all these things. The problem is there's probably lots of delay in reaching the, you know, when it becomes obvious, we're probably beyond the eight ball. Absolutely. I think that's a great way to end this talk and I and this session. And, you know, I, I thank you everyone for, for taking the time out of your busy schedules to join us. I think this was valuable and I'm sure our listeners will will really enjoy the, the back and forth, um, you know, and, and it was and it was fun, you know, which is kind of exciting all at the same time. And uh, I'm sure my mom and dad can't wait to hear this one too. <laughs> Well, on that note, once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Edward Life Sciences and the production team at Bang on Vinyl for putting this all together. This wraps up again tonight for the CSCS Beats, more than just matters of heart. Stay tuned for more podcasts in the near future. Thanks, everyone. These recommendations reflect emerging and clinical scientific advances as a date of issued and are subject to change. These statements are intended to assist practitioners in the clinical decision-making, and each cardiovascular specialist must still exercise his or her own professional judgment in determining the proper course of action for each patient's differing circumstances. The CSCS assumes no responsibility or liability arising from any error or admission in the use or from the use of any information contained herein.